0: I am not from the world you know at all. My home is a planet millions of light years away. how wonderful. I've always loved books about such possibilities.
1: Space, the final frontier. These are the recordings of the podcast, Give Me That Star Trek, its ongoing mission, to explore all of Star Trek, to seek out new guests and new opinions, to boldly go where many have gone before.
0: Welcome to episode 54 of Give Me That Star Trek, a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Tiscoid, and if you're a Fire & Water Patreon supporter at a certain level... You can suggest a show, and this is, in fact, a suggestion from Cory Musa, who wanted us to do a show about two Star Trek novels, Yesterday's Sun and Time for Yesterday. This one's for you, Cory, and we're calling the episode Son of Spock for reasons that will soon be made clear if you haven't read the books already. Uh, my guest for this away mission has to be a fan of Star Trek's extra canon, so we welcome back to the show the one and only Irredeemable Shag. Hi, Shag.
1: Hey, Siskoid, thanks for having me back. Although, to be fair, I am on every single episode. Every one. I do feel like, though, now that this is my third like full appearance, I, I feel like there should be a new extra set of questions, like prove your metal kind of questions, and I'm afraid you're not ready for me with that, are you? Can I at least get like an extra set of gold braids for my, you know, my part of my wrist kind of thing? You want to be a commander yeah. at this point? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sure.
0: Lieutenant Commander, three times. You know, Ensign. I love it. I love Lieutenant, it. Lieutenant, Lieutenant Commander. Call me, sir, damn it. Well, I'm, I'm the captain. I'm the admiral, <laughs> so I'll call you uh, son. So <laughs> it fits the, the episode. We're going to talk about two Star Trek novels. And uh, before we get into the specifics of these two books, here's our chance to talk a little bit about What place these Trek novels, not necessarily these Trek novels, but Trek novels in general, have had in our lives. I've seen your bookshelves through video calls and and photos of your little uh, geek nook. (laughs) <laughs> um you've got a lot of tie in no- you love tie in novels. It's not just Star Trek, is it?
1: I live in the movie tie in novel area for the most part. I mean, I delve out there's a few science fiction writers I like, but yeah, I am always drawn back to the movie TV tie in range. I just can't help myself. And Star Trek's one I live in a lot. I I did a count last night getting ready for this. I did a, I have a well over 150 Star Trek novels. Now some are hard copy, Ooh. some are digital. I, but I haven't read them all, you know. I, a lot of my like I get and I'm like, well, I'll just read that when I retire. Sure, yeah, I'll be blind. I won't be able to read by then probably. But (laughs) I've read about 60 of them. And and I was wondering because I looked I looked at my Goodreads last night too. So I've read twenty-seven star trek books in the last four years so now several of those were like rereads and stuff like that so it's about seven a year so i do think it's fair to say that i feel like i'm pretty frequently reading star trek novels maybe i should branch out and read more stuff and read some stuff that's got some smarts but uh yeah that's where i live so what about you like how often are you reading trek books not that
0: often now boo right now i'm reading a lot of doctor who tie-in novels oh okay you win if it's if it's going to be tie-in novels. <laughs> but Star Trek, Star Trek is actually, like, we're going to talk about Yesterday's sun, And Yesterday's sun was, I'm pretty sure, my first Star Trek novel when I was, like, 12. Oh, wow. It came out in 83, and I was 12 in 83. And I got it from the Science Fiction Book Club. Nice. Probably part of my early purchases there. There was, like, some Han Solo tie-in books. Right, right. And, yeah. Yeah. And then I bought, like, a lot of science fiction and fantasy from that, which I still have all those books. Yesterday's if not my first one, very close to my first one. So I got a few others hardcovers from the, my enemy, my ally, and you know various like early ones like that, and then. Uh, And then I got a lot of them from a used bookstore that was just up the street from where I was. Mm. And uh, so I was getting them cheap, all the like the early TNG. Well, I say early, but you know, the TNG ones, the DS9 ones, even the early Voyager ones. So it was around that, you know, whenever those were out. Um, so I probably have a lot more of those than I do the original cast Interesting. in terms of books.
1: I tend to hover around the original TOS people or the movie era and the next-gen era. I don't, I don't tend to dip my toe in the DS9, the Voyager, or the Enterprise books. I, I, I own some of the Discovery ones. I haven't read them yet. Now, he, here's something for those of you that like Star Trek books. Keep your eye on Amazon has a monthly sale of 99 cents for Star Trek books. And they do, they put about five or six out there every month. In fact, just this month, if you're listening when this comes out in August of 2021, The Eyes of the Beholder by A.C. Crispin is only 99 cents right now, which is a next-gen book, book number 13, yeah. which is pretty cool. I uh, I do have one quick kind of funny story about this, is because of these sales, I'm always buying these digital books, right? Well, after I bought the same book three times. I, I had an old audiobook, I bought a hard copy book in a used bookstore, and I bought it digitally. And not knowing, I owned the same book three different ways. Uh, my wife said, enough's enough. So I had my daughter. I paid her money two summers ago to sit down and type up all my Star Trek books to do an inventory for me in a Google Doc. And now I can check whenever I'm getting ready to buy because I bribe my daughter.
0: <laughs> I mean, because there's so many. Yes. There are so many. And at one point, Pocket Books started really doing things that can almost be considered canon, like post whatever happened after the shows, mm-hmm. after the movies, that's almost canonical. You know, what what happens when... Uh, you know, there's a series of books about Riker yep. going aboard the, the Titan and his adventures on that on that ship, and, so, and are a lot of li- little, like, ancillary crews. and
1: They're actually uh, publishing some books coming up, closing all that down, because they, this doesn't match up with Picard. So they're actually going to publish uh, coming up some books to shut it all down.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, these books are rarely canon. We'll talk about that, uh, in fact. But, the, of course, the shows and movies don't have to follow what the books have been saying. It, it can all be contradicted. Absolutely.
1: I do want to pimp also. There are two Star Trek book podcasts out there that are really good if you like reading Star Trek books. One's called Literary Treks. It's been out there for quite a while. Which a more recent one called Positively Trek, and I think that's one to that really hit your good spot, um, hit your uh, happy spot. I don't know how to say that properly without sounding dirty. Anyway, uh, my G spot. <laughs> yeah, it's just good. I think you'd like it though, because their whole focus is to be positive, to find the things they love about Star Trek and not dwell on stuff they don't. So it's a really positive ep- uh, series, and they do uh, book club episodes where they cover some of the books, and uh, I find it very, very enjoyable.
0: Check that out if that if that's your interest. Let's get into the meat of this and talk about these two books. Uh, They're both written by Anne Crispin. A little bit about her. Yesterday's Sun is really actually the first ever novel that A.C. Crispin, that's the gender neutral pseudonym used by the then 33 year old Anne Crispin, uh, wrote. Not only did Pocket Books buy this unsolicited book in 1979 and release it then in 1983, but it became the first Star Trek. Non-episode novelization to appear on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. Mm -hmm. She wrote the sequel to that story in 1988, Time for Yesterday, which we'll also cover. And a few more, of course, including the well-received Sarek... And so she was writing these books up through the early 2000s. Tie-in books actually really her thing. She's also written books for Star Wars, Witch World, Pirates of the Caribbean, and your favorite, V.
1: I was going to say, if you don't mention V, we're going to have a throwdown here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And in the 90s, she wrote her own original young adult series called Starbridge. She lost a battle with cancer in 2013, aged 63. The Yesterday Saga novels do remain her best-remembered books.
1: Yeah. No, you're right. You're right about that. Now, for me, this was actually my first A.C. Crispin Trek novel. I've read lots of her V-books, as you mentioned, and you know, and stuff like that. But I had never read one of her Trek books, for somehow I just never got around to it. And I did find it interesting, in the beginning here, there's an introduction by Howard Weinstein. Yes. And he's introducing A.C. Crispin to everyone. And it's funny for me, and maybe I just have a war perspective again, because of my love for her writing the V-books, but I feel like she became a bigger name than him in science fiction writing. And so it was just sort of funny to hear him as like the, the the well-respected sci-fi writer introducing someone who I felt like surpassed him.
0: Yeah, I, I think he, he did a lot of Star Trek novels as well. He did a lot of Star Trek comics yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's always been more of a, I don't know, I, I want to call him a jobber. You know, like he does the job. He's a very straightforward author. But I don't know, she got to play with the toys in yeah. a way
1: that he never did. Well, he got to write one of the animated series episodes, if I remember right. I think that's where he made his bones. He was like Seventeen or something, yeah, you know, it's a story young. like that. Yeah, but you're right. She got to play with the bigger toys. You're absolutely right. And, and, and for me, this this version that I'm reading is uh, you mentioned book club. So do you still have your book club hardcover edition? Yep. Oh, so we're both reading the hardcover. That's interesting because everyone out, you know, not everyone, but most people out there had the soft cover because that's the way it was mostly released. But mine is also a, a book club edition that I got oh, actually when I was in a. Half-price books, I bought it when I was with Professor Allen, actually. Awesome.
0: For you, this was a first read.
1: Yeah, because I, I usually hang out in the Ds when I'm reading Star Trek. So the Diane Duane, the Diane Carey, the Peter Davids. So <laughs> 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 Two, I was doing one letter too late to read the Crispins.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we have the same edition. I, I read the second book as a as an ebook because I, I didn't own a copy i got a paperback for that one here's the story we're going to spoil these books this, this well, yeah. is the thing yeah i mean they've been out for decades <laughs> <laughs> you are unlikely to uh, to read them at this point or stop now go out and read a couple books and then come back it's all up to you
1: they're worth reading so if you haven't take the time we wouldn't be talking yes. about it if it wasn't worth it
0: we're not going to spoil every little bit so you know wait a year Forget everything you heard here <laughs> and read them. <laughs> I, I think they're worth it. I think they're both worth it. So uh, here's a quick synopsis of that first book. In the episode, All our Yesterdays, remember that one? Spock was sent back into planet Sarpedons. Sarpedons? How are we going to say this? Sarpedian. Sarpedian. No, there's no I before the O. So it's Sarpedon. Sar- I'm going to say Sarpedon. <laughs> I hope you leave all of this in. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to. Okay, so Spock was sent back into planet Sarpedon's ice age, where he met Zarabeth. Now, during the fifth year of the Enterprise's mission, analysis of Sarpedon's archives have thrown up cave drawings that show a young Vulcanoid male. Spock, Kirk, and McCoy use the Guardian of Forever to go back and get him and Zarabeth, but they miss the mark by a few years. She's dead, and her son, Zar, is an adult, one with certain empathic powers unknown on Vulcan. They bring him forward, and he lives aboard ship for a few weeks, learning quickly, but the one thing he never learns is how to interact with his cold, distant father. The Enterprise is soon called back to the Guardian, however, because the planet is under attack by Romulans, not that the Star Empire really knows the nature of the weapon that might be down there. Spock and Tsar go down to put a force field on the gateway, and though they fail, it's their one bonding moment. By the end, the Romulans are, of course, defeated, and Tsar chooses to return to the past and spark the rapid cultural and technical revolution that the archives show happened 5,000 years ago. That's a brief synopsis of also a very brief book. It's only 140 pages, so it almost doesn't qualify as a full novel.
1: Yeah, it feels a little bit like a novella, really.
0: Yeah, it's very, very quick. And, I mean, it could have been expanded because there's a lot of stuff that happens off stage, where they'll come in and say, okay, we did this. And, you know, it's all post. We'll be told that these things happened meanwhile, but not shown them or not explored.
1: Yeah, you're right. Some of the paragraphs come in, they're just sweeping. They're just like, yeah, this is what they did over the past several hours. I'm like, wow, okay, that could have been like two chapters in a full-length book. Wow, okay.
0: It, It shows that she was like still an immature writer at that point. You know, she's not padding it out. She's telling you know the essentials of her story, but I think if we look at this, like when we look at the second book, it is full length. There, you know, there's a lot of much more material. She goes into you know much more in depth in certain things that here she doesn't. So
1: I want to say because of the short size of the book the thing moves at a breakneck pace i mean 18 pages in and they are already off on a mission to the guardian forever i mean they're, they're off going to the time trip already 18 pages in that blue I, I was once i realized that, i'm like wow i mean there's no time for inter- introspective thought they're just describing the action and in some ways it reminds me a little bit of the old james blish novelizations yeah um, or or if, you're, uh, if you like all your movie tie-ins, Doctor Who target novelizations as well would fit. But it does feel like there's 250 pages worth of story crammed into a 140-page bag there, really.
0: But you make a good point, because I think at that point, late 70s, that's what Star Trek books were like. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the James Blish novelizations, or, you know, it w- even those early novels, Spock Must Die, and are fairly short. So uh, I think she was just, like, working with the template of the time, but by the time it came out in 83, and this is an early pocketbook, and the pocketbooks got much bigger through the 80s. Yeah, It just feels like, oh, my, my god, you know, it's it's really going fast. So Zara's been on ship for uh, three weeks. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the concept behind this, giving Spock a son, I, this is the whole point, what would Z- Spock be as a parent? Is <laughs> is what she wants to get at. And, uh, folks, it's, it, it goes just about how... how how you expect it to go.
1: That's fair. You know, the problem is Zar is still in touch with his emotions because he's half human. He was never raised under the Vulcan disciplines and all that. And obviously Spock is feeling, uh, Spock's struggling because I mean, Zar is almost his age. You know, Spock's, I don't know how old Spock is at this point. I don't remember exactly, but Zar's 28. So they're, they're almost the same age. So Spock's struggling with this whole thing. And then Zar begins to learn about the Vulcan philosophies. I mean, all, again, happens at breakneck paces. And I, I'll just tell you now, that's some of my favorite parts of the book, is the interactions with Spock and Zar. I mean, to me, that's what it feels like this book is really, really about at its core, is, as you said, Spock being a dad, but also what it's like for Spock's son. What's it like to be Spock's son? Totally relatable. Uh- <laughs> oh, gosh, okay.
0: Um, yeah. Well, you know, sometimes you have, some people have a distant father figure and in my case the my parents were broken up um rather early and um a father you don't see very often i was living in the ice age and <laughs> <laughs> he went to live in texas uh, you know so so it, you know fathers and sons this can happen you don't need to have a vulcan parent in the mix that's fair necessarily. that's necessarily uh, but i what's interesting actually is that McCoy becomes the father figure
1: mm-hmm.
0: in this. I think McCoy has a great role in this book. Like Kirk is there, but he's not, we think of the top three are usually being catered to like Kirk. Isn't being catered to as much as the other two. And McCoy becomes the empathic father figure. The, you know, one's the father and one's the father figure. I guess is is my, one way to say it.
1: Now, do you think McCoy was compensating because of his relationship with his daughter?
0: Uh, well, they mention it. And I think that is a thing, uh, and we'll see in the second book which happens later that now Kirk is thinking about David because that's been revealed you mm-hmm. know in the in our timeline so fathers and and, and children and estrangement and you know so uh, McCoy at this point had already had that story with his daughter in a previous novel
1: it was in the series bible apparently that was a discussion between uh DeForce Kelly in one of the Trek writers, and they developed that while the series was being filmed, and it went into the series' Bible, but it, I don't think it ever played out in the show.
0: No, it was supposed to happen in The Way to Eden. She was supposed to be one of the hippies, hmm. and uh, instead it was like that Russian girl, so it, it didn't happen. Yeah, I think there's like moments where they disc- they talk about the daughter, so here it's either just references, and then maybe in the second books, so and I'm now kind of muddling the two, but maybe in the second book, it's more in his mind because... There have been books that have dealt with that by that time. Yeah. Probably, yeah. But yeah, so I love McCoy in this, and I also want to say how much I like how Crispin gives Uhura stuff to do.
1: Well, I I noticed that more in the second book than this first book. I read these so fast together, I'm having sort of the same blurring together sort of thing. Remind me what Uhura was doing in the first book.
0: Well, in the first book, I mean, in the first book, you can't do much because there's just 140 pages. that's true. Yeah, but it's still Uhura, who is the one that makes the point that the Romulans probably don't know what's going on so that they can... Use that. Okay. Okay. So she's an ideas woman there, and she's the one that leads the rescue team at the end. Oh,
1: yeah, that's right.
0: So it's all very quick uh and so there's more room to play with the hurra in the the in the second book but still it's like here we have a female writer kind of hidden because uh, you know there there is a a gender neutralization of her name so that i don't know you know fanboys don't know that a woman is writing a,
1: a- I- i'm sure that's exactly
0: why yeah like later we had Diane Duane and it just becomes very natural uh and we had Dorothy Fontana you know on the series itself but her too DC Fontana exactly
1: so that, exactly
0: yeah so, but we have a female writer actually giving some attention to the one or the to the female characters because Nurse Chapels in this as well that maybe a male writer would not have thought of Uhura as the rescue party leader, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things I was, I was noticing, too, was just the voices that she captured. And, like, T'Pau, she captured... I felt like she really captured T'Pau's voice very, very well. I could r- genuinely hear it in my head. And the same goes for Kirk, Spock, and McCoy as well. But that was another female character that uh, seemed to really have a good handle on
0: and, and she does add some Vulcan stuff. I know we know that's another writer's bag <laughs> to, to really beef up the... Uh, the Vulcan culture, but she still adds the idea that, you know, how they deal with family and that it's a problem for this. We use the term bastard child to exist, that Spock has to go get him and everything, but it's also a, a secret shame. I like the flip side of it where they, they turn it on its head, where here in our culture, the bastard is the one that is stigmatized. Right. But in the Vulcan culture, it's the parent yeah. who abandoned the child. Uh, so for, for Spock to go to T'Pau to integrate this son into the family, it, he is shamed for having, even though he couldn't have known. You know, I had a son like 5,000 years ago. Right. It's not really his fault. I, I think that's an interesting take on the whole thing, and it makes like, the Vulcans peculiar interesting as a result. So I like that bit.
1: So do you think Spock was experiencing the embarrassment of the shame when he wouldn't let uh, Czar tell everyone that he was his son, that he, you know, and then Bones gave him specifically that haircut to look more like Spock. So basically they were telling everyone that the czar was just a distant relative. Do you think Spock was doing that out of embarrassment, which is a human emotion or an emotion in general?
0: Well, we know how Spock is really reserved about any of this stuff, you know? And I think there's the, the actual embarrassment is probably that because, I mean, even Kirk doesn't really
1: know what happened in the Ice Age, like, McCoy was there. Oh, come on. It was sex. Kirk could just know. He just sensed it.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. In this book, they seem to, to have a kind of uh, a telepathic bond. We'll talk about that. But <laughs> I think the details of it, not to be discussed. So I think that Spock, when he went back in time in that episode, he reverts to more primitive Vulcan moors. Mm-hmm. Like somehow there's a telepathic field in the universe and 5,000 years ago, I don't know, Vulcans are barbaric, so he feels kind of barbaric as a result. However, this is happening. I think that's the embarrassment, that he lost control. And every time he's lost control, he's been embarrassed about it. That makes sense, yep. But then it's like, how do we explain this? And we're not supposed to go to the Guardian of Forever. Nobody's supposed to know what's down there. On gateway, so he they can't really discuss it with the crew. Only the people that have been on the planet's surface know, and they, they keep bringing the the same characters there because those are the characters already in the know, mm-hmm. and we don't have to make anyone uh, anyone else you know sign confidentiality agreements. <laughs> so when you bring back a kid from five thousand years ago, what are you going to tell the rest of the crew? You can't really. Yeah.
1: That's all fair. Yeah. yeah.
0: Because the book is so short, we there's little time to actually explore the reasons behind all this. But I mean, did you let Czar have the run of the ship and he's very personable and people like him and he's got roommates and so he's living this whole life aboard ship before the events of, at the end that eventually send him back into prehistory.
1: Well, Czar well, is definitely the guest star of the week kind of thing. I do mm-hmm. think she, uh, she still did a really good job keeping Spock and McCoy, and again, as you said, not as much Kirk, but Spock and McCoy still very active in the story. They still had very lead roles. And I bring that up because there's going to be a contrast with that when we get to the second book. It's a very different situation, but yes. I do think it was good that they. It, it's it felt like a Star Trek book. It felt like a story that was happening on the Enterprise. You know, very much could have been an episode. Uh, that and I perfectly could. I, I as I was reading it, I totally picture now part of it's the boris vallejo cover is so excellent but i totally picture what czar looks like i I can picture uh you know the the light and the sets and everything i can just see it all in my head and what it would look like so they star trek is so in love with time travel i mean just ridiculously in fact at this point when these books were coming out some of them had the timescape logo it's not on our version but if you look on the original paperback they had these timescape logos on the covers of several of the books And uh, I I don't know what that particular branding was about, but man, time travels all over Star Trek.
0: Yeah, eventually becomes a crutch. Yep. And there's much too much of it. And it's still true today. I mean, there's a lot of it still today. Uh, Yeah, Discovery's guilty of that. One of the things is it's a sequel to All Our Yesterdays. It's sort of a sequel to City on the Edge of Forever because we return to the Guardian. And then the Romulans show up, and the Romulan in charge used to be the subcommander... In he was the subcommander in the uh, Enterprise incident. Mm-hmm. So it's a third sequel,
1: and there's a lot of references to other ones as well too throughout the book.
0: Uh, I mean, there is a question as to whether this is uh, too many references. I mean, what are the chances? <laughs> <laughs> it's a Romulan we know.
1: Continuity versus fan Wang, And Where's the line? And this is it right here. So I say the Zarabeth stuff with all our yesterday is fine. Guardian uh, on the edge of for- I'm sorry, Guardian of Forever is actually I think a fairly clever usage in this book. It was Sub-Commander Tall's appearance that made me go, boom, there it is. That's the line we've crossed. We're now into Fan Wank. (laughs) Yeah. That was was too far for me. What about you?
0: Well, yes, but I think before that, I think it's before that, there is a mention that there's one thing she does that I kind of agree with. I think, oh, this is clever. The episode, uh, All Our Yesterdays, said that Spock and McCoy were thrown back to 5,000 years before. Mm-hmm. So, 5,000 years ago, it was an ice age where people dressed in skins only 5,000 years ago. But in the present, they've got time travel. So, it's like th- that's a very short turnaround. Mm, okay. What she does is to say that, well, eventually it's because Tsar goes back and Tsar will usher in, you know, he's learned so much about the present day, which is the 23rd century. That he's gonna use that knowledge to boost the culture. Like suddenly they're gonna go through the Bronze Age and be much quicker, the Iron Age, and so in five thousand years they can get from cavemen to time travel essentially, because he's gonna seed so much of the technology. So I thought that was clever. What is not so clever is when they say, "Oh, of course." Zar went back and he's going to create the culture. Did you never wonder why Zarabeth spoke English? And I thought, oh, that's a step too far." That we need an explanation as to why Zarabeth spoke English in that episode. Oh, it's because Zar learns English on the Enterprise or I mean, it's a time loop because he already spoke English because his mom spoke English. Like, that's nonsense.
1: They use the universal translator everywhere else. It's not, I don't remember a mention of Kirk, I'm sorry, Spock or Bones' universal translator not working 5,000 years ago.
0: Exactly. So that's the explanation that we have and don't, so we don't need somebody saying, oh, well, Tsar is gonna, like Sarpedians, <laughs> people speak English because Tsar seeded English 5,000 years ago. If you seed English 5,000 years ago, 5,000 years later, it's not English anymore. That's true. I don't like it when they... I mean, there is the bring in too much from past episodes, but there's the let's explain something that normally is never explained and doesn't need explanation. Right. That, to me, is just always a step too far. It's like, oh, oh, I don't think we needed that little bit of of continuity to fix a problem that is not actually a problem. So that, that one bugged me. But, of course, Tal showing up and he's like one of the... Like three named
1: Romulans right? in the,
0: in the whole universe series. that
1: they know. And they, Oh, look, there he is.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it gives a motive to, to want to take revenge on Kirk or Spock, you know?
1: Okay. But it's, I don't know. I, it was not necessary. It could have been any Romulan. It, it did not add anything to the story that it was tall. It really didn't. I do want to. I do want to compliment and for uh, a couple different things. She established some more onboard life of what it was like living on the Enterprise. She talked about performances and plays and raunchy ballads all about Kirk. I love that kind of stuff. I love it when you hear about what the day to day life of living on the Enterprise is like in between the big adventures. So that that made me. I, I really enjoyed that. And then uh, speaking to our, the the fast pace of the book, there was one scene. At the end, actually, this is not a compliment. This is a a a little bit of a criticism. Everything is fast paced, fast paced, fast paced, and then the very end, Czar and Spock have to hide on the planet from the Romulans, and they're hiding for like hours. Like they'll like you know like how much how much twelve hours yeah how much time do we have twelve hours and then like a couple paragraphs later how much time do we have four hours like seriously they just sat in a hole for that long and it just it seemed like a a contrast to the whole rest of the thing which was super fast paced.
0: Well. Um this kind of brings me to I, I wanted us to nominate for each book to nominate a moment. A favorite tidbit, a favorite moment, a favorite line, a favorite character, whatever. That bit where they're stuck for like twelve hours mm-hmm. in a in a hole on the planet actually contains my favorite bit or the oh. bit I want to nominate. Okay. I mean it's slightly ridiculous, but it's the bit where Spock has the birds and the bees conversation with Czar <laughs> <laughs> They talk about Ponfar, and obviously that Tsar is not going to go through that because living in the past, she's not part of that you know, whatever that telepathic minefield that is volcanity, but it is a birds and the bees conversation, it is the talk (laughs) between the dad and the son, even though the son is now an adult, and beyond just that little moment that made me smile. Otherwise, this is their moment of bonding, Like being in that hole for 12 hours, finally, finally there's a closeness and there's a respect and there's a, okay, now I understand more from where you're coming from moment. Uh, so I feel like slowing it down at that moment and giving Spock and Tsar an actual like it's it's all been very cold and harsh and you know Spock's been putting him through his paces and and criticizing him continually and learn this and learn this and and it's that father trope where you're sitting at the the table and uh, you know and going what did you learn at school today and uh, you know, yes it feels very very smothering you know with academia. Because Spock doesn't know how to interact any other way. And in that hole on the planet, that's the moment where he can drop his guard, where, you know. Uh, so so I, I like that that moment is given time to breathe a little bit.
1: Is that the same time where Spock explains the whole bastard thing? Because at some point, Czar understands. Like a light bulb goes off for Czar at that point.
0: If this were an episode, we'd want that at the 40, 45-minute mark. Yeah. yeah. What, what was your favorite bit that you, you would have liked to nominate?
1: Well, I'll tell you, in general, what I really loved about the story was all of those bits. The, the parts you were just talking about where Spock was being the tough dad at the dinner table. All those awkward moments where they were... Czar was trying to be emotional, his daddy wasn't getting it. That's the stuff I found juiciest in the book. But if I was going to nominate one moment, and by the way, this is why I can never be on the Mirror Factory, because I'm terrible at keeping track of bits and quotes and stuff. I actually had to cheat and look on Memory Alpha for one. But uh, this is a great quote. It, it's when they're getting ready to go to the Guardian Forever for the first time. And Spock and Kirk are have been approved to go on this mission. And McCoy shows up and basically blackmails them into going on the mission. Spock has a quote here. He goes, Taking into account Dr. McCoy's predictable penchant for rushing in where angels fear to tread. I reasoned he would attempt with this. Uh, there's usually a logical pattern to the good doctor's illogical pattern. And, of course, McCoy says, Why you pointed here and ungrateful? You know, and it cuts off. But I love that bit where Spock plans for McCoy to be a pain in the ass. And he actually works it into his plan and <laughs> has already gotten approval for McCoy to go, even though McCoy never, they never planned on taking him. He knew that McCoy would weasel his way in. So I loved that part in the book. So if I had yeah. to pick one moment, that was uh, the part that made me laugh. And it felt like, again, it, it felt very genuine with their voices. I could totally see that sort of 1960s delivery and style uh, work really well.
0: My next uh, section here is, is called Book Weirdness, because <laughs> these books obviously are just off the canon, and sometimes we'll establish things that then the shows or the movies just can't cash those checks, basically, right. you know. Or it's just because it's a book, and because you don't know that there's going to be another movie, you introduce things that work well in a book that would never work on screen with the level of technology of the time, or whatever. so. Uh, there, there is some pocketbook weirdness, and I'd like us to discuss some of these. I mean, one of the, the biggest, probably for me, in this is an early moment where Spock and Kirk have a telepathic moment. Without talking, Kirk kind of hears the thoughts of, you know, they've been in a mind meld before. And so from then on or something, Kirk can kind of hear it, Spock's thoughts. That's how it's played. They talk about that telepathic bond as a the reason how Kirk suddenly knows what's happening with Spock at the beginning of the book.
1: Well, then from, from this moment on, they should have a telepathic bond through all the movies, right? They should. Yeah. <laughs> You
0: know, and stuff like the Romulans have, uh, you know, project a cloaking device on the planet so that I don't. I'm not even sure how to like picture it. But
1: well, it also it also didn't make sense because they bring Czar. Cause Czar could sense the other Romulans uh, even though the cloaking device is there. But he's describing stuff besides the Romulans. I mean, he's like saying he he can see everything. So it's like, well, wait a minute. I thought he could only sense the Romulans. How is he sensing everything? Okay, well, whatever. Just go with it. It's a book. All right, fair enough. Yeah,
0: yeah. So stuff like that is like kind of weird. And as far as the book cover that we have, it's probably just um, artistic license. But it looks like if this is supposed to be the five-year mission, then Spock is actually wearing a movie uniform. But it's also a blue movie uniform. So
1: yeah or or gray, blue or gray, yeah.
0: Kind of looks like well, what if the movie uniforms had been color-coded mm. for blue for science and okay. because this book came out after Star Trek 2 was written after Star Trek I, but I like the idea that at some point that there might have been that wouldn't be the case because the the you know, motion picture uniforms also exist, but that there was at some point some version where it's the movie uniforms, but they're not all red. They've they've got the color coding from the past.
1: I would love to see that. I mean, it looks good here. I'm sure someone's probably done it in Photoshop anyway. But now it's, Boris did sign it '83, so this would have been painted after Star Trek II. But yeah. you know he probably just didn 't get the memo, memo that this took place during the, in the series itself, but either way it 's a nice looking uniform it 's sharp Was there weirdness that you picked up on see i 've got weirdness for the second book i don 't okay. have weirdness for this one, but I, it does bring me to a question about books that I want to bring up is Star Trek books you know we 've read a lot of them, and as we said this one 's one hundred and forty pages, but by the time you get to the late '80s or early '90s all of them are you know three hundred plus pages because they, they do a couple of these giant books and then it becomes the regular thing. So is Star Trek the first TV movie tie-in book franchise doing full-length original stories of, like, you know, 250 to 300 pages? And what what gets me thinking about this, I was in a bookstore recently, and I I was wondering about tie-in books and how far they go back. I'm like, gosh, I wonder when these things started. I came across a copy of a a TV tie-in book for The Invaders. So we're talking, what, the late 50s at that point?
0: Invaders, Maybe 60s, but yeah.
1: Well, I also came across Man From U.N.C.L.E. and I Spy, which by the way, I just read the Man From U.N.C.L.E. book and I bought this I Spy book. So obviously TV tie has been around for a long time, but those were just like this, like 150 pages at most, you know, almost pulpish, you know, to some extent. So... Can you think of another franchise that predates Star Trek that was doing long form books?
0: Longer books than the targets than the even like the early Star Trek ones in this from the 70s? Yeah, I can't. No, I don't think so because I think they were meant to be like what we call young adult today. <laughs> yeah,
1: Yeah, yeah. They, were,
0: they were yeah, like quick reads for teens and young adults probably or bright children. That was kind of the market for these things.
1: So, yeah, the, the Man Uncle book was, I think, 157 pages or something like that. The I, the I Spy is about the same length. The Invaders was the same length. They're all, I mean, they're all, it's almost like there's a formula. They're all in that 150-page uh, range. So, yeah, I agree. It's all in that young, young adult age, which apparently is where I'm still trapped, I guess, uh, since I read mostly TV movie times. But so, yeah, uh, I, I, if anyone else can think of one, I would love to know in the comments. If there's some other franchise out there that was doing this before Star Trek in the longer form, I'm interested.
0: Yeah, let us know. The other question that I had uh, at this point was, what is the value of doing a sequel to an episode, which this is, as opposed to a completely original story, which many Star Trek books are? You know, similarly, I guess it's the same as as asking, well, you know, was Wrath of Khan a good idea?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thou shalt never ask that question.
0: (laughs) No, we don't need to, right? But like TNG, the books, have mostly done original stories, and then when they've got... A lot of continuity. They do it like in a special book that's unnumbered. They bring in Peter David. <laughs> yeah, and Peter David even in his his books that are like the just the shorter ones still managed to put out Q in Law, you know, which right. has Luxana and Q. So some people can play with the toys, and some people can't play with the toys. <laughs> um, and you got to write Ghost Ship or <laughs> whatever. Oh,
1: <God. laughs>
0: I'm just naming the first one, you know, right. like the Children of Hamlin or something. You know, you, you've got to do these original episodes that don't have any continuity or. Less continuity, but then if there's going to be a lot of continuity, let's say what the relationship between Trelane and Q are, you know, that's going to be in a special book, right? Uh, That's what TNG's been doing or had been doing for TOS. That's also true eventually, but this is like an early example of full-on continuity. Let's do sequels to episodes in the the normal range with a shorter book. So, did you feel like it worked? I think so. To me, if all the books were sequels to past episodes. I don't think I'd like that. Okay. Because then it, it takes away what's, what's special about it when you do it. So this is, I feel like, a special book because it's suddenly not a new adventure completely, but, a, you know, a sequel to an old adventure, an adventure we might have liked. I think All Our Yesterdays is one of the only good episodes of the third season.
1: <laughs> so for me, uh, and this is where I, I admit some of my lack of cred, I don't have to say, I think I've admitted this before, I actually yeah. haven't seen every episode of TOS. In fact, I don't even know if I've seen half of them. I probably have, but I don't remember. If I did, you know, it would have been 30 plus years ago. So I don't remember uh, all our yesterdays at all. I had to go watch the episode before I read the book no recollection of the story whatsoever. I'm certainly, you know, some some of it looks familiar, but I'm like, okay, well, just did I see some of the pictures on the trading cards? I don't know. First off, let me just say, I really enjoyed Yesterday's Sun. I thought it was a great read. I'm really happy I read it. Thank you so much, Corey Musa, for challenging me to read this book. I love it. But I don't know if it works if you haven't seen the episode. If you haven't oh, seen the okay. episode without Zerabeth, like, you can see Rathacon without seeing Space Seed. In fact, I did see Rathacon before I saw Space Seed as a kid. My dad quickly fixed that. But, uh, but yeah, I, I without seeing all... All our yesterdays and remembering. I don't know if this book works. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that they just assume you know about Zerabeth? I mean, they they briefly explain it, but you don't get the the real feeling for it.
0: There's Zerabeth. There's the Guardian of Forever. I- imagine you've never seen the show.
1: <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah,
0: like Zerabeth, the Guardian of Forever. They seem to come out of left field. It's like, oh, Spock, you know, had a kid with a woman from five thousand, 000- and you're going. That really comes out of left field. It's a non sequitur.
1: Well, it was for me because I was reading the inside cover of the book or wherever I was reading some description of it. And that's exa- I was like, well, he had a what? And so That's when I realized <laughs> I had to go watch the episode first.
0: And I'm not sure when I first read it that I necessarily had All Our Yesterdays in mind. Hmm. Like it was running on TV at some point in my youth, same apartment. Where I read this, Yeah, I remember watching "Star Trek in that apartment. <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't mean that I know, oh, oh, this is the, you, you know, the fruit of the union of Spock and <laughs> Zarabeth that I would like I remember that episode. I'm not sure I did at the time.
1: Or, or as a kid, you didn't quite understand what happened when McCoy was out of the room. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Maybe. But also, I mean, at that age. It, this is basically, you know, the time where you're just picking up Crisis on Infinite Earths and it's, well, okay.
1: <laughs> All right, You just dive in and you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: So I think I was doing that with Italian novels as well, you know. So uh, you pick it up and you, you just say, okay, well, that's, if that's the case, then okay. But the, the continuity plug-ins, if you don't, I mean, that's for the hardcore fans. And if you're not a hardcore fan, but you're still reading Star Trek books, uh, you're going to feel like maybe, like I had to double check. Which episode Tal was in, you know, for Mm -hmm. example. I I thought at first he might have been like the Centurion from Balance of Terror. Anyway,
1: so, (laughs) I mean, they've all got similar names. So now I'm wondering if I've actually read more Star Trek books in the TOS era than episodes I've actually seen. That That may be. That may be the case.
0: (laughs) But, you know, most of the time they're completely, you know, you read the book and you get the complete story and you don't need to go back. In other words, to answer the question, there are pros and cons to, to each but if you know your trek, it's always gonna be special when Sila shows up. Or, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. there's there's something about that, that recurring character that makes it feel like okay, like the book is really in that
1: world. My ancestors are barbarians. Warlike barbarians who nearly kill themselves off with their own passions.
0: Time for yesterday. This one came out in nineteen eighty eight. A much awaited sequel to Yesterday's Sun, I think. And it, for me, it was my first read. I read it on Electronic Medium. I want to thank. Cory Musa as well, because it started me off on reading a bunch of ebooks, so now I've always got an ebook open on my computer so when I sort of drift off I'm working, but then I can't uh, then I'll read a couple pages and I'm, I'm going through a book a week mm. doing this in addition to my paper book that I'm also might be reading so thanks Corey you uh, you changed my life <laughs> so this was also first read for you I imagine
1: yeah, so this is my first read but for both the books really but w- one of the interesting things about time for yesterday is that this one takes place in the movie era, which is my favorite era of Star Trek always, is the, is the classic series movie era, and there's not enough novels in this period. And I wanted to point out something specific, because this book was released between Star Trek 4 and 5. Now, that's not when the book takes place, but that's when the book was released, between mm-hmm. 4 and 5. And if you notice in the book, and I, I hope it's okay if I curse, but Kirk says shit in this book. He uses a colorful metaphor, and I got to think that is in response to all of that from Star Trek IV. I can't imagine any other reason they start throwing around swear words in a Star Trek book other than this was written right after Star Trek IV came out. That makes sense. By the way, coincidentally, I just got to mention, if you're listening at the time of the release, Star Trek IV in the movie theaters this week. Uh, Fathom events. I'm so excited. Me and my buddies, we're going to go see Star Trek IV on the big screen. There be whales here. I can't
0: wait. (laughs) Yeah, I saw it in theaters originally as well. well, Yeah, me
1: too, but it's been a few (laughs) years. (laughs) It's been a while. 35 to be exact.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's going to come to Canada or in other markets. Sometimes they do. It's like we just don't have Fathom events, and we don't have the same chain. Yeah. So uh, let's do a quick synopsis of this one. Uh, We catch up with Tsar. It is a sequel. We catch up with Tsar pushing 50 at the dawn of... Sarpedon civilization on the eve of a great battle where his city-state could fall to the barbarian hordes. Meanwhile, if such a word has any meaning, about a month before <laughs> the events of Star Trek II, that's when it's set, The lifespan of certain stars has been accelerated, forcing mass evacuations where suns have turned into red giants and the loss of ships where they've turned into black holes. The time waves seem to come from the Guardian of Forever, and a plan is hatched to let Kirk and crew bring a telepath there so that she might be able to communicate with the entity. She fails, but Kirk, Spock, and McCoy travel through the big time bagel to (laughs) Tsar's time to recruit him since he was able to speak to the Guardian back in Yesterday's Sun. But Tsar doesn't want to return with them, even when they tell him he'll die in the coming battle, according to history, because he doesn't want to leave his people, nor his new bride, a precognitive high priestess from a rival tribe called Wyn. And this is a marriage of diplomatic convenience that surprisingly becomes a love match, with assurances that they'll bring him back seconds after he left Zar eventually agrees. Not only does he reach the Guardian, but he also helps defeat the dangerous entities that caused the malfunction. The Guardian's own originators return from another dimension. After a few weeks of rest, surgery for old wounds, and strategizing in the hope of winning and surviving the battle, Zar returns to his time, but so does Spock secretly to save his son. Zar wins the day, but is almost killed, even with Spock's intervention. But the Vulcan striding around the battlefield makes both armies believe Czar is indestructible, confirming a prophecy. And so the culture founded by Tsar continues. And so does Tsar. He survives this. This is Time for Yesterday, which is a much more Czar centric book. Yeah. We spend chapters in his home time, you know, describing his planet, his culture, what's happening to politics. How, how did this one play for you?
1: Uh, well, Czar's definitely the main character. The first 100 pages, he's not around much, but the other 200 pages, it's clearly his story, without a doubt. Uh, how did this play for me? Uh, I'll talk big picture, then I guess I'll burn it, it, into the details, but It's a much slower pace, so we get a lot more inner thoughts. I enjoyed that. I liked seeing what people were thinking. Um, I liked how the book was broken down into almost three very perfect 100-page acts. There's the whole opening act of getting... You know, the gang together and then going to the Guardian. Then there's a whole hundred page that takes place in the Sarpedian's past. And then there's a whole hundred pages, which is where they deal with the originators and the, the conclusion of Czar's story. So I thought that was very, very well balanced. I, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to say what I want to say, but I'll just say it now, I guess. This book is not a Star Trek book. I guess is my biggest challenge. The first 100 pages feel like a Star Trek, Star Trek book, but the other 200 pages, it's a fantasy novel. It really is. I, I, would you agree?
0: I think that, yeah, you make a valid point. You know, everything with Czar back home and especially before the Star Trek characters show up there. If you've never read Yesterday's Sun, this is all non sequitur again, oh, you know, yeah, it, it yeah. really is a sequel to that. But if you have, yeah, it is about creating that it's a world building. We're creating Sarpedon during its Bronze Age, essentially Bronze Age, Iron Age, because they're on an accelerated path. All of this and creating the cultures and the backstory of what happened to Tsar in between this time and the time before. You know, there's a couple decades that have passed. All of this stuff is, could be a fantasy novel, like, she's created a, her own world, she's telling her own story, and Czar is the pet character. Like, everybody else is in service of him, mm-hmm. including the stars of the franchise. That said, it didn't bother me. Okay. <laughs> so, And I'm someone that, like, used to read a lot of fantasy when I was a kid. And at one, at some point, I just couldn't anymore. Overfull of the tropes, and I didn't care about it anymore. And today, I can't read fantasy. I have trouble. But this, because of the started connection, because I already knew Czar, because I kind of cared for him as a character, and through this book, and maybe it is what you're talking about, the interior thoughts. But I really, really, I, I'm going to use the words fell in love with Czar and with Win, those two characters. And I just wanted to follow their story, Hmm, whether the, the, the Trek cast was in it or not. (laughs)
1: <laughs> All right. Well, that, well, then that means the book did its job. Because, I mean, she's clearly trying to write a Czar book, not a Star Trek book. And if she made you fall in love. La- now, I, I was shipping them. I, I liked them as a couple. And, and I, I don't want to be clear. I didn't hate this book or anything. I've just got some criticisms, and I think they're not unreasonable sure. to discuss. I liked Wynn and Czar together. I thought they actually made a great couple. Again, I was shipping them, and I was, I was down with that. But I do struggle with fantasy books. I'm not a fantasy book fan. I'm the kind of guy who, when you walk into a bookstore and you see the sci-fi slash fantasy section, I get mad. I'm like, okay, really? Why would you have these two genres together? They are it's like putting romance and western in the same section. Yes, you can have one and the other, but they, they should be separate. They don't go together. So I, I struggle with I, I didn't hate it, uh, but a lot of the, the civilization building and the the prophecies and all that kind of stuff, and you know, the servants and the horses, I'm like, okay. I did learn something though, that the fact that stirrups. Is a, a major innovation and helps give leverage and better combat. I I didn't know that, so that was kind of cool.
0: Yeah, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> but yeah, the fantasy aspects uh, I didn't hate them, but it it well, and it wasn't a slog, but it was just like okay, yeah, let's uh, give me some give me some trek here, please. And I don't care yeah. if, if Zar is the focus of the trek, that's fine. But I, I needed some trek.
0: Well, what did you think of the trek in this?
1: I really enjoyed the first hundred pages quite a bit, actually. The first, uh, where they're getting the crew back together and they're they're going to rescue Bones in, and they're searching for Bones and the civil, you know, all the civilizations are in danger by the suns and the science-y kind of explanation, whether it's real science or not, I don't care. It was, it was Trek science, I bought it, where the suns are aging at accelerated rate and destroying civilizations. I, I dug all that. I found that really cool. The Guardian of Forever having a disk drive error? I don't know about that so much, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's the best way I could describe that one. But I do have a question for you. So how many times is Starfleet going to jump through hoops to give Kirk back command of the Enterprise, and totally reunite him with his crew. How many times is enough for them?
0: I think that's the reason there aren't that many movie-era novels. Mm. Because there's just so little space for it without it becoming ridiculous. Like, give them a mission <laughs> during this era. I mean, three of the movies are back-to-back. so then, yeah. And then he gets turned into a captain again.
1: Right, so there's a world of movies, uh, stories to tell between five and six. However... This came on out the, b- on the
0: Enterprise A, right. but this is too early for this. Yeah. Exactly. The book was published yeah. Too
1: early. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What I liked about the Trek stuff in this is actually the, the way it played with the themes. Because Spock has a son out there. At this point, we know, you know and Crispin knows, that Kirk has a son out there. Mm-hmm. And of course, McCoy has a daughter out there. Uh, you know, which is more prevalent in the books than, uh, you know, in any screen appearance. But it's still the case. So the characters are sort of thinking about children, about their legacy, about estrangement. Should we make contact? Like Kirk in this is thinking about David all the time. Yep. You know, it reminds them of David. Should I contact David? Should I finally make my move? Uh, she told me to stay away. Am I still staying away? You know, so it's it's very... Uh, strong in his mind, and, you know, through these events, I mean, they're, they're sticking very, very close to the beginning of Star Trek II. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're talking about A Tale of Two Cities, which Kirk will receive as a birthday gift. They're talking about going back to the Academy, and it's like two months before Star Trek II, basically. Uh, and she's seeding all of this stuff in to say it's about to happen. But there's one of the themes in the book is because of that prophecy. There's the prophecies that Wynn is coming up with, and then there's history, which is written down, and so Spock knows the fate of his son, or thinks he knows. The So the theme of inevitability is in there. And that also feels like it's foreshadowing Star Trek II, you know, the inevitable uh, meeting of Khan and, and Kirk, and, you know, what's going to happen, and, the, you know, what... You know all those consequences and Spock's death in this or in that movie. Spoiler. You no, know, sorry, <laughs> he gets better. <laughs> so, but it, I mean, all of that we're forecasting Czar's death, and then Spock has like mortality on his mind. And so when when he goes uh, at the end of uh, Star Trek Two, when he goes to that chamber. Is he thinking of Czar? We might mm. be think- asking that question. So, because it, it, if it happened, if we say it happened, then there's like this context where these guys are, are maybe feeling more mortal because they have grown children. Because, you know, so I like how she uses that to put thoughts in their minds, you know.
1: Definitely the, the legacy concept that throughout the book and the feeling the age in that regard and did they do the right thing as parents i love that aspect of it. that's a very good point
0: because czar is gonna go to his death happily yes so so that's where i'm thinking okay well when spock makes that choice in a couple months
1: i do have to wonder whether you're finding something in there that might not have been in the book i think it's in the book because
0: okay. it was written post star trek 2 okay so When she says, when she has Zar accept his fate, Mm. that is a mirror of Spock accepting his fate. Okay. Accepting the sacrifice that he must make later, you know. And we get that sort of theme also with the, you know, the, the strange telepath that they bring in, the kangaroo alien.
1: Right. And that's that's where Ohura gets a role in this book. That, that's where I was talking about a little bit earlier. This is the stuff yeah. I really liked where Ohura got a chance to have a role in the story that was... Pro- and this felt Star Trek, uh, Ohura having this role with this character.
0: Yeah. So she helps midwife, basically. Uh, these aliens have uh, three genders. One of the genders is carrier of the, of the fetuses of the babies and sort of delivers them, but then they have to be in a telepathic field at the time. And, and they make a point that Uhura is very empathic. She's the most empathic person I love, you know, for, for Spock Uhura shippers. <laughs> Again, Spock is very, very, uh, admires Uhura greatly, you know, for qualities that he does not have, he's which very, is her empathy.
1: He's very personal with her, too. He's calling her by her first name throughout the whole thing. Uh, yeah, it's you can feel there's a there
0: yeah in the movie era they're much more personal amongst themselves mm. that's true so it, it's not necessarily just like a shipping thing but yeah so she's she's very important to the story to save those babies and sa- save that character but also it's also about children and what you know what your responsibility towards them and at the end i would say that when spock makes his secret mission and goes back in time when last time to s- try to save czar I feel like, okay, well, even though this is a Tsar book and really it's all about Tsar Czar and Tsar's the hero, at the end there, there's still, like, they give the main crew some agency. Because the book could have ended with Tsar goes back, he made some strategies, he made some differences, he doesn't die, but it's just his story and we end on him all the way through. But by sending Spock back and making him instrumental in saving Tsar or, you know, saving the culture, then there's still some agency for the, for the main crew at the end.
1: Just a little bit. Not just, much. Just, just enough. The, there's the important one. Spock saving his son. I mean, that's a major, major parental message to have in there. Father willing to sacrifice himself for his son uh, vice, kind of situation. That was important. But I, I feel like that's about the only agency the Trek crew had uh, in, the, in the last 200 pages of the book. I got another criticism that ties into all this. The whole MacGuffin of the story is that the Guardian of Forever is freaking out right and it's causing oh, yeah. these time waves and it's sending out this energy and it's wrecking the cosmos and the whole reason it's doing this is because it's bringing its own originators to this universe right it's bringing the people or the the entities that created it to our universe bringing them home after billions of years and whatever i mean that's a big cosmic concept. And it's a very Star Trek concept. And the, and the originators appear to them in the forms of various Star Trek characters we've seen, uh, which is also very, very Trek. I really like that. It was a great way to do it. I could, In fact, I could really picture that. My issue with that was 300-page book. The MacGuffin got 30 pages. That was it. It was crammed in the middle between Act 2 and 3, and it feels totally throwaway. Because that ends, and that should have been the climax of the story, but there's 70 pages left, which is... Spock saving his son. So it really tells you that, yeah, you know what? All this Trek stuff, that's not what the story's about. The story's about the fantasy part. It's about Zarpedia in the past. It's about Zar and it's about Spock being his dad. So that part I i felt like did not stick a landing at all.
0: Yeah, I, I think that was like the weakest part of the book was that whole interaction with the guardian gateway aliens. I don't know what to call them. One of the things <laughs> that I noted, like similarities with D Space Nine. Like first of all, there's a, a priestess called Win W Y N. Yeah, yeah. She's a much nicer character than um just a bit guy Win. But it's still a high priestess called Win. There's a question of prophecies. There's the Guardian of Forever acting like the wormhole, and there's these aliens that come out that <laughs> that take the take the forms of people you know, like the prophets. So of course, Deep Space Nine is still in the future, but there's like. Wait a minute, <laughs> did, did somebody read this, and uh, or is it just a coincidence? Well, know?
1: borrow from the best, and it's all in the Star Trek uh, genre, so it's not like they could sue each other for it, so why not?
0: <laughs> I had that same note, you know, that there's a danger of telling a story about a pet character, that you abandon the characters that, that people are going to the novel to read, you know, basically. I'm sure that some people don't care a fig about czar, or maybe did not read the first book, and so this book seems very... Bizarre. And, you know, I've been reading Doctor Who books, you know, as part of that, those ebooks that I've been reading. I've been reading a lot of Ace Doctor uh, novels. Doctor Who novels, like the New Adventures and the later books. They all do this at some point, you know, where you're going to have chapters and chapters and chapters of people you don't know. And eventually the TARDIS appears.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, it's usually, I, it, it's usually around page 60 where the TARDIS finally <laughs> shows up.
0: <laughs> That's supposed to be like the first five minutes of a, of a Doctor Who episode <laughs> before. But yeah, with Star Trek, you've got so many characters to pay off. And the show, the way it's built, rarely starts somewhere else. Right. You always start with the captain's log, you're on the ship, and, and so you feel like you have to, to spend time with these characters, and it can't be about others somewhere. So this book does commit that sin.
1: But it sounds like you were okay with it, though, because you were really invested in czar and win i
0: really enjoyed the world building that crispin was doing here i i just enjoyed this character wanted him to 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 keep going basically
1: no it's it that's not a crime i just it it didn't work for me as well as the previous book like i really really enjoyed yesterday's Sun, uh and i can envision myself rereading it in you know 10 or 15 years when i'm old and don't remember how it went i don't know that i'd reread time for yesterday probably because my dysfunction Satisfaction with fantasy books, you know, not and not that Crispin wrote a bad book. It's just it's you know it, it didn't feel like Star Trek to me, and I'm not a big fantasy guy.
0: That's perfectly legitimate. Did you have a favorite bit that you wanted to nominate from this book?
1: I did. I don't have a quote, but it's a scene. Uh, it is in the first hundred pages when Kirk and Spock have been reunited, and they're trying to find McCoy because they think he's dead. They think one of these expanding suns have, have killed him, and they do all this clever calculations and they find his ship called the Kismet where he is and it's it's actually pr- at least for me the way, and maybe I was just having a good moment but it was a pretty tense read where they're trying to rescue the ship and there's like a, a, a spacewalk uh, midspace rescue, and all the, the crew members of the Kismet have to tie each other like a tether, and they have to cross uh, you know, to, through space to, in EVA suits to get to the other shuttle and stuff like that. I found that pretty darn exciting, and I was kind of on the edge of my seat. I mean, I knew McCoy was going to die, but I was on the edge of my seat, and I that was my favorite part of the book. I really enjoyed that part.
0: That would have been a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, it would have
1: been. <laughs>
0: For me, uh, I, I didn't pick up a moment necessarily. I just... Simply put, the character of Win in this slot, mm. where I I thought there's a lot to that character and surprising things and well described. The character of Win was a winning one for me. So, what about pocketbook weirdness? <laughs>
1: uh, I do have a few on this one. So some of them are just kind of funny. Like uh, mm. they say chicken salad sandwiches are Kirk's favorite. I'm like, okay. <laughs> like they didn't just say he likes them. They said they're his favorite. And I'm like, that's a pretty big thing to pay off with, you know, at this point, what, a 25-year-old franchise or 20-year-old franchise at this point when the book was written. I'm like, okay, you know, if you really want to specifically say that, that's fine. Then uh, A.C. Crispin, or or it could have been her friend Robert Greenberger, who she did credit in the beginning as saying thank you. She had some fun with one scene. I had sent you this. There's this one page where they describe this solar system, and they're describing all the planets in the solar system. And the planets include Kent, Perry, Olson Lang, and in the scene is a woman named Martha. And I mean, there's so much Superman, you know, on that one page. It is clearly on purpose. And again, Bob Greenberger is famous for slipping Star Trek, uh, Superman stuff into Star Trek books, anyway. So I, I didn't know whether it was her or Bob who did it, but that just cracked me up. And that it, it's a little pocketbook weirdness there.
0: Terrible names for planets, by
1: the way. <laughs> well, I don't know. Kirk owned a, owned a little spot on Kent, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then uh, now here, here's two questions that like the books in theory you want them to fit well with the tv show and the movies right and sometimes you put a concept in the book that that almost feels a little too big to be in just a tie-in novel uh and i'll explain what i mean so in when they're back in serpedian's past or captured as spies and they're tied up overnight, and they're dying from exposure. Literally. And at one point, McCoy gives up and wishes for death. And they say, like, he's never had an experience this bad. You know, does the novel overinflate its own self importance by saying that this is the worst moment of McCoy's life? I, I don't know whether the the book can earn that kind of... I don't know. Am, am I out of line by even wondering that?
0: No, I, I didn't pick up on it, but you're right. That I mean, there are many moments of suffering for... I mean, the original series... <laughs> Didn't play nice with McCoy. <laughs> like the worst moment of his life, according to Star Trek Five, is the death of his father. Right? Like his medicine couldn't do anything. So Star Trek Five says, "No, it's not the the bit." <laughs> in time for yesterday. <laughs> when you say something like that, it's hyperbolic and it's hard to prove because people re- will remember more, much more clearly moments that have happened prior to that.
1: And, and then the last one is just, you know, when the the waves of time are coming out of the Guardian, you know, there are, there are lots of people and maybe even civilizations dying, you know, being aged to death and evaporating immediately. And, I, you know, I wonder there too, is that too big of an impact on the galaxy to be relegated to a tie-in book? I mean, this is almost like a Wolf 359 level incident and it's just an Italian book and it's never going to get referenced again. And I, mm-hmm. I, I just wonder. I thought
0: that at the end when, when they resolved that plot, that the Guardian would, would restore, like, reverse time mm. on those planets. But it's never mentioned, it's never said, so right. I guess it's all permanent. I thought, like, the stakes, the way they've been drawn, right, that's where this is going. You know, like, the Guardian is going to undo this stuff because it's too extreme. Right. But no.
1: So what about you? Do you find any pocket weirdness, like chicken salad sandwiches? <laughs> sure. Well, I, I, I
0: thought that the population of Vulcan being 7 billion people was a bit high for a planet that looks like a desert. Okay. Uh, And, I mean, they're not, like, screwing, like, rabbits. It's Vulcan. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. (laughs) I don't know. That's weird. Sulu already being on track to become a captain in between the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan? Yeah, I mean, it was supposed to maybe become that before. But anyway, it's, it just seems too early.
1: I can't remember if it's the novelization of Star Trek II or Star Trek III. Um, mm. Actually, specifically says he was on the command track, and he was supposed to be getting a captaincy, but then came back to the Enterprise to help Kirk. So that's actually probably the Star Trek II That's book. probably where it comes from. Yeah, so, right. it, so there is this old piece of Trek, you know, almost like, like Trek Bible, if you will, kind of story, that says, by Star Trek Two. Sulu was already on his route to command. Uh, and then you see, in, in fact, in the DC comics, they make him uh, Kirk's second in command for a long time when Spock's dead because of this. And yeah, it's all out there. And so by this point, when this book was written, it was absolutely out there that, that Sulu was on the command track.
0: They reference the Horta science officer.
1: Oh, yeah, that's absolutely a pocketbook thing, isn't it? Yeah.
0: Yeah, he first appeared in uh, My Enemy, My Ally. Uh, so that, that was what an, an early book that I'd read. Mm-hmm. So I'd mistakenly thought, like I was looking for him in Yesterday's Sun. <laughs> and it never happened
1: Has a pretty big role in those Diane Duane books, actually
0: Yeah, yeah, she uses them a lot And uh, there is the thing where I, I feel like It doesn't leave a lot of room for other stories Between the motion picture and Star Trek 2. It's like, the motion picture just happened And Star Trek II is just about to happen So it feels like, well, there isn't a lot of room For these movie-era books If you're gonna really stretch it out Between two movies Like, you're not playing with anyone else like, everybody else has to, well, I guess Zar was aboard ship, you know, for weeks. <laughs> right. So, uh, do I have to put him in my novel? <laughs> yeah. So, that's a pocketbook weirdness, in my opinion. Let's ask the big questions. What do we think of this when writers, like, here, there's a pet character, Zar, but we mentioned Diane Duane a lot. She wrote a lot of Romulan books. Mm-hmm. So, it's almost like she owned the Romulans or that chunk of the Star Trek universe uh, in the book. So, what do we think of certain writers creating their own little corners of the franchise like this.
1: I love that concept. I love it when they give a writer a chance to flesh out something. You mentioned the Diane Duane books. I've read a couple of those and really enjoyed them. I've got the other ones on my next to read lists. You know, Peter David's a great example with The New Frontier. They gave him his own entire corner of the Star Trek universe. So I'm a big fan of that. And in this case, obviously it appealed to you. It wasn't for me, again, because of the fantasy issue, but they could have done more here. Uh, in fact, uh, there is actually, uh, I found, again, this is off a of wiki, so I mean, you know, you take it for what it is. But according to a couple of interviews that were given back in uh, 2003, there was a third book being written, which was going to focus on czar, And the basic plot was, uh, uh, was going to be that Vulcan was destroyed and someone's altered the past, which would force Kirk, Spock, and McCoy to have to travel back in time to fix the situation. It focused on Tsar sort of interesting and then there was another interview done uh that claimed there was going to be three books in that trilogy by 2004 though the editor of pocketbook said that they weren't going to go forward with it and then of course by 2013 crispin had passed away so at some point there were more plans to give Anne crispin mm. uh, a corner of her universe to continue to flesh out the czarverse
0: The Zar- the
1: czarverse <laughs>
0: the fantasy uh section of the star trek universe yeah if I guess Corey would have asked us to read that one as well, <laughs> it would have been a longer show i would I would have been interested in seeing more of Czar, but at the same time, I feel like no the the story ends here, you know, yeah, how many times can the boys go through the donut <laughs> to get back to czar you know it's like every time like you were talking about all the hoops that they had to jump through every time they need to put the crew back together in the mm-hmm. movie era, well, every time you need Czar you need to you know. There's some extra effort there because he's not contemporary with them.
1: At least I thought she did a good job with the hook in this one where the Guardian of Forever was broken and they needed Zara to fix it. So I felt like that was actually uh, a clever way to bring him back into the story rather than forcing it. So I like that. Yeah,
0: The Guardian was always important. And like in both books, the Guardian has to be protected or has to be fixed. or It's never just a device to bring Czar in. Mm -hmm. It's also part of the story. Uh, Do you think there's a, it was a valuable experiment to give Spock a son and to see that play out?
1: Absolutely. And I think it made more sense when the first book was written, because if you think about it, the first book written in 1983, right? It's after Star Mm -hmm. Trek two has been published. It's before Star Trek three is out at that point. It's an interesting era, really, to write it. Spock's dead, you know? And there was no guarantee Spock was going to come back in the third movie. I think a lot of people, especially, you know, coming soon, Star Trek 3 Search for Spock was in the freaking credits. But either way, people thought Spock was dead. So, what a great chance to flesh out the backstory of a character when you're thinking maybe that character's never going to progress forward because he's dead. So Mm. I I think giving Spock a son was a great chance to really explore Spock further and show other angles of him. I don't know that the value's still there when you get to time for yesterday, but you did get a really, like you said, they really used it quite well to set up Spock's own death. So it works from that aspect, too. What about you? Do you think there's value in giving Spock a son?
0: Anytime you want to bring emotional context to Spock, That's going to be an interesting story. And most of the popular episodes of the original series, you know, many of them had that component. Like, if if Spock fell in love, showed emotion, that was in the favorite episodes. Yeah, okay. You know, so doing this, I think, is totally in that bracket. I mean, it's the same thing you do with Data. Like, Data is dating. Okay, that's an interesting idea. Like, the, the character with the strange emotional context having to face normal emotions. So mm-hmm. parenthood is a normal, apparently, uh, <laughs> apparently it's a pretty normal thing. It happens to a lot of people. and uh, <laughs> But how is Spock going to react to that? How That's the interest, right? I think the bonus was that Czar was an interesting character in and of himself. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see his reaction. Like he almost became our point of view character where like, what would it be to be, like you said, Spock's son, it's not about what. – what is it for Spock to have a kid? No, no. What is it for the kid to have
1: Spock as a dad? Right. I mean, that, uh, that's a whole big question to ask, and, and she explored it quite well.
0: Yeah. So I think that that's what's interesting. What happens with the second book is that we have to remember that the first book was a huge success. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people who read it, a lot of people who loved it. It made her career basically it launched her career, so a book that is about Czar may seem bizarre <laughs> um, <laughs> may may seem strange as a Star Trek novel, but we have to remember that five years before he was the center of this massive hit right so I, I think that readers five five years later there were readers for this, people who wanted to see what happened to Czar next and that cared about Czar and that story enough that the Star Trek crew could take backseat a little bit.
1: No, it's absolutely fair.
0: Today, out of context, it may seem, uh, I don't know, like this isn't as much of a trick novel as it should be. And that's fair. But at the time, I think there was like that interest existed because that first book was such a hit.
1: I really enjoyed both books. The first one, I think, is exceptional. The second one, not quite my cup of tea. It wasn't a bad book though. Still enjoyed it. It was great. But yeah, I think the first one it deserves all the credit uh, and all the accolades it's gotten. It's a great book. It's a great story set up. It really it, and being so compressed, it doesn't even give you room to find fault in it because it happens so fast. And so uh, yeah, it's it's a lot to love and a lot to stew and think about. And I could see why people sat there for five years and cranked away in their brain about it.
0: Is this storyline? Something that you would like to be considered canon. Hmm. Like any of these books obviously are not canon, can be contradicted, like we said. But there are moments where you'd say when you read a book, doesn't have to be these, where you think, well, I wish this was actually true. Or from now on, this is in my mind when I'm watching the show. And in the show, they don't mention it, but they don't contradict it either. So I'm taking it as, yeah, this happened. And we, we all make our own canons, you know, for each of these franchises. Head canon, absolutely. And it's all fair game. Would you imagine this? Would you have liked it to be a filmed episode? Imagine, would you want this to be in the canon? Or is it a little too... Fanish a little too.
1: So the first book, absolutely, I can envision it. I, I mentioned earlier exactly as an episode. I can see the sets. I can see the lighting. I can see the whole thing as an episode. The second one, I struggle even with where they branch out, and like Star Trek Five and Star Trek Six, where you see a lot more on set, out in the wilderness, kind of filming. I still struggle to picture the second one being filmed. So, I think the first one would fit very neatly into season three or season four. Would have worked great visually, or you know, I guess season five. Forgive me, but it would have worked. <laughs> would have worked great on screen. As far as my headcanon goes, I think for me, I'm going to walk away that Spock has a son in my headcanon. I'm going to walk away that Czar's his son, and they had those interactions in the first book. And they had the interactions in the second book. I probably won't dwell on the second book as much, other than Spock saving his son at the end. But I think that, yeah, in my headcanon, I totally see that Spock had a son, and I believe the connection between them.
0: I feel like today, in the Discovery era, this is almost more canonical than it was back then. Because now we've seen a younger Spock who has who has been proven to be very secretive about family, Mm. about not mentioning these kinds of things, never mentioning Michael Burnham as part of the family. Vulcan family is a very private affair, and it's even more private than we thought, you know, by Discovery's time. So that there is a son out there that he never references. It's the same way that, you know, Kirk never references David before he shows up. Right. You know, so... We just don't, we're not privy to any moments where they discuss this among themselves, and they probably don't discuss it, and Spock is a very private person. It's not like he ever mentioned his, his foster sisters. So. Right. So, yeah, so it almost makes more sense in the context of that version of Spock. And we've seen the Guardian in uh, Discovery as well. And that Guardian, I feel, connects more to the, like, the broken Guardian and, and the originators, in a way. You know, it's like when you look at Carl the Guardian, in, in Discovery. <laughs> I love that, by the way. I love that. <laughs> there is a, you know, it's like, okay, well, then if he's manifesting as a person, it's like he's learned the tricks of the originators. You know, it, it feels more like, okay, this is more true now than it was when it was written. So I like to keep this sort of headcanon. This is one of those stories that I can imagine, I like to imagine did happen, that Spock really did have a son as well. You can't say that of every book. I wouldn't say this one gets contradicted exactly you know across the years so it can stay in our head canon no problem. Fair enough. And that brings us to the end of the show, Shag. What are you working on right now as far as podcasts go?
1: Well, I'm working on this thing where I, every uh, month I record an intro for the Star Trek podcast where I get to do... The, I re-record that every month, guys, just for you.
0: You're very consistent.
1: I, thank you. I, I try hard. <laughs> but you can find all my work here on the Firewater Podcast Network. Specifically, uh, I host the Justice League International Blah Ha Ha podcast. And then I co-host the Aquaman and Firestorm podcast and the Who's Who podcast and Cast And... I know I'm forgetting other stuff. Uh, A number of different things all over the network. And uh, yeah, that's you find me on the Fire & Water Podcast Network.
0: So thanks again, Shag. And thanks to our patron, Corey Musa, for suggesting this episode, Topic. I don't think we would have come up with it on our own.
1: Oh, absolutely not! But I, I love the Star Trek book so much. This is such an exciting uh, opportunity, and you can tell by the length of this episode uh, the, the exciting opportunity for me to talk about Star Trek books. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the for the chance.
0: Well, Shag, there's a giant donut for you. Just mm. you just rock through it. <laughs> Watch out, don't get the sprinkles on your shirt, and I will, of course, stick around for subspace transmissions, that's Star Trek
1: news, and your feedback on our previous episode. I hope it's not having a hard drive error. (laughs) Justice League International, Blah Ha ha Podcast, a new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis, will be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So, join me in an ever changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as
0: Martian Manhunter, Batman,
1: Dr. Fate,
0: Black Canary, Fire, Ice, Maxwell Lord, Oberon, Captain Marvel, Rocket Red, Captain Atom, Mr. Miracle. Guy Gardner, Booster Gold, Blue Beetle,
1: Nort, and many, many more. Justice League International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it?
0: Incoming subspace transmissions. Lower Decks Season 2 premiered August 13th, just five days ago. I hope you had a good time with it. A new episode of Lower Decks comes out every Friday until October 15th. We've been chronicling the tumultuous production of the next Star Trek feature film here at Gimme That Star Trek, and now the news is uh, that WandaVision showrunner Mark Shackman will direct the next film. The uh, so called top secret Trek project produced by JJ Abrams that is set for June of 2023. This next Star Trek feature film is reportedly moving at warp speed with a uh, script co written by Captain Marvel and Tomb Raider writer Geneva Robertson Dwarrett. Apparently, it's with the Kelvin Timeline crew, but at this date, deals have not been made with the actors. Warp speed, indeed. <laughs> The Emmy Awards, Star Trek Discovery has picked up four nominations, two for makeup, one for sound editing and the last for visual effects, and Lower Decks, one nomination for sound editing. The awards gala takes place on September 19th. (laughs) Tangential to Star Trek, uh, Simon Pegg is now working on a Galaxy Quest TV series with Emmy-winning writer-producer Georgia Pritchett. Revealed in a recent interview with the UK's Times... Uh, The article contains no other details about the project. The latest news regarding the Galaxy Quest series was one in development at Amazon, which would bring back members of the original cast. A number of writers had been attached to that project, including Paul Scheer, who in 2018 said it had been put on hold. According to Scheer, his version would have uh, have had the original cast interacting with a new cast, a storyline he said was inspired by the 2009 movie Star Trek, Featuring a new cast. In March of this year, Sigourney Weaver told Collider that the project had been in mothballs in the years following the 2016 passing of Alan Rickman. However, she also indicated new activity, saying, I think they're finally now reviving it. It's not clear if the current project involving Pritchett and Peg is related in any way to the one worked on by Shear or mentioned by Weaver. However, She said it was a story of the old ancient Galaxy Questers being brought into the series with another young cast. Sounds similar. Galaxy Quest star Tim Allen has also discussed reprising his role as Commander Taggart. Earlier this year, he talked to EW about a possible sequel to the film. And so with many starts and stops over the years, it's hard to say if this latest attempt to bring back Galaxy Quest will take off, but Peg seems to be a perfect fit for the project. What is it they say? Never give up. Never surrender. And now a selection of your comments on our previous episode, The Tuvix Dilemma, with guest Ryan Blake. David S. Gutierrez has been waiting since the launch of this show for us to cover the topic uh, his not uncommon take is that Tuvix was murdered. Chris Franklin found it hard to argue in favor of Janeway on this one and can't imagine Picard making the same decision. He also brings up several other examples of combined life forms: V'ger merging with Decker and uh, Ilya, and the companion from Metamorphosis. So Kirk also didn't murder the new beings. Brian Linton chimes in to mention the trail as a joint species. And we can also look to the episode Facets for Odo and Curzon merging into a new being. Jeff R. and Chris Lewis both felt this episode was a little one-sided and wished there had been a member of the panel to take Janeway's part. Well, I felt that was uh, my role, to nitpick Ryan's comments and ask, what about this or this? But ultimately, I don't think Janeway's position was all that strong. Even the arguments that Jeff and Chris bring to the table are more or less on the meta variety and try to find excuses for how the writer's room must have struggled with it, which just brings us back to the point I made that the you know the story in that format was unworkable and should have been abandoned if it couldn't be made to work, and that of course it's the result of not having enough time or having to deliver X number of episodes. Uh, Jeff's rewrite is particularly good, though. He says... It may be too much to fit in a single episode, so maybe it's a two-parter. We know that there are other Vulcans in the crew, so we bring one of those into the story early to do a mind meld with Tuvix, and they find Tuvok's Katra in there and say, oh no, it's fading away. Then we have the big discussions, and Janeway comes down the other way. As a materialist, Starfleet cannot make decisions based on Vulcan religion. Our Vulcan takes the villain part and does the procedure— And we epilogue with Tuvok condemning the person who saved him, but Neelix being upset with Janeway uh, and her position. I think that makes a better episode, but again, it's twice the size. So in 45 minutes, this is not a story that works as well. Uh, Rob McCarthy is more dismissive. He says, I heard the writers straining so hard for conflict, it was hard to care. Uh, Alan W. Wright says, I think Janeway's a psychopath could be an annual feature please, Alan. No. Uh, And Nord says, one thing I was wondering about Tuvix is if we accept that the reformed Tuvok and Neelix are the same people as they were before the accident that created a perfectly functional individual, wouldn't they be able to create Tuvix again? If they know what happened and if they have access to the same resources, can't they go from Tuvok plus Neelix to Tuvix and back again at will? possibly combine any two members of the crew except the doctor. With teleportation technology, there's always the question of are they the same person after they've been reassembled? Is every neuron, every particle of the brain in the same position before and after and so on? Maybe Janeway's worldview is formed by living in a world of daily death and genesis and not really being herself. Nor do you bring up the metaphysics of teleportation, which is a topic I'd love to tackle in the next season of Gimme That Star Trek, so stay tuned. And finally, we have Brain Linton says, Your discussion started me thinking about the nature of self. What is self? Is it a singular quantity, a gestalt, made up of multiple components? Is it something that is permanent, or is it in constant flux? Tuvix carries the memories and experiences of both Tuvok and Neelix as well as possessing aspects of both their personalities. Yet, Tuvix perceives himself to be a separate and unique individual from Tuvok and Neelix, which suggests that, in the Star Trek universe at least, self is something different from, or more than, memory and personality. Anyway, this will give me something to chew on while I wait for the next episode. Before I sign off, I have a small announcement to make. Gimme That Star Trek is going on a five or six month hiatus while new topics and guests are scheduled, and I free up a monthly slot for a podcast miniseries starting in September. So don't worry, the show will be back in 2022 with a new slate of askew topics. Just you wait. In the meantime, we're going to start getting a lot of new... St- Trek content on television and that should keep us well occupied the Fire and Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast so if you like our content and want more like it think about leaving a one time or monthly donation it even unlocks rewards for example for $5 a month you could get yourself on the Starfleet commendations list like full ambassador Doug Van Diver join Doug and I in the fleet at patreon.com and as usual let me remind you that you two can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com or on the Fire and Water Facebook page Page, on Twitter uh, where we are FW Podcast. You can also follow the show on Spotify. So until the next episode this is Ciscoid reminding you to go boldly